Hello, cherished friend. Thank you as always for joining me down here in the comfy confines of the pod bunker. It has been way too long, but it is time to resume our long and winding road, our, our scenic route through all noteworthy new music releases from the entirety of the decade of the 1980s, specifically this time around June of 1983. As you probably know, it has increasingly become my habit and my want to do a little mini companion episode for the best of the rest over on my patreon this time around do not get it twisted there is tons of really interesting really classic memorable noteworthy stuff to talk about from june of 1983 maybe not enough to try to stretch out into two shows though so i'm gonna do it all on the big show on the main show the show you're listening to right now but when you are done here make no mistake there's plenty of other stuff waiting for you no shortage of audio and video delights awaiting you at my patreon it's the lovable space that needs your smiling face come join the fun at patreon.com slash mike tully patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show Uh, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, it's funny. Coming to you live on tape from a state-of-the-art, climate-controlled, freshly vacuumed, mercifully Bernie Doodle-free podcast, bunker and rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California. This is the Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. So happy to have you all back here with me. Don't get me wrong. I do love digging into uh, doing some research, going down to the bookstore, perusing the the new releases of nonfiction, looking around at certain sites online, finding new and thought-provoking titles that, that interest me, that I think might interest you, that we all might learn something from, that might give us some perspective. I hate the nature of, I don't need to belabor this point, I'm sure you all know what I'm getting at when I say, you know, the nature of, of, of news media nowadays. I just think it's so toxic is a word, not, not a word I throw out around uh, casually, but it really is. It's it's it's, tiny. it's like it's like little cigarettes. Cigarettes are, are, are poison that doesn't kill you in one shot, but cumulatively, cumulatively, not, not, not so, the events of the world are scary enough as they are. We're grownups. We got to deal with grownup issues the way that we are presented these issues and the way that we're expected to process it. I feel like it's like, it's like yoga for the mind to look at the, you know, the issues that affect us all as a world, us, our children, our children's children's, but to look at them from a slightly like, like broader perspective. It's like, it's like yoga for the mind to go, okay, here's this thing that I know I should give a shit about that I do give a shit about, but let's just look at it from a broader, more objective, less hysterical point of view. I love finding those kinds of books. And then I, I you know, I, I dig into them and I, I read up on, you know, I read the little previews on Amazon and then I'm like, okay, how do I track down the author? And I love it. It honestly brings me joy every single time. I know I've said this before. Where I'm like, oh my God, a person will talk to me on, on this show? Awesome. So that always pleases me. And then I, I love it when they send me the, the PDF of the book and I dig into it and I read up on the thing and I'm like, okay, what are some questions that I really care about? What are some questions that this author hasn't heard a million times? I love that whole process of doing that. 
yeah, I, I totally love doing that. But boy, oh boy, am I happy to be back in my real sweet spot. The This is the, the comfort food of my podcasting diet and uh, the comfort food of my music listening diet is, as everybody who listens to this and knows me well knows, um, classic stuff from the 1980s, specifically this time around from June of 1983. So we're back into it. And we will begin with an album that was described by one, you, you, you take everything the British music press says with a grain of salt. At a certain period of time, they had those guys, they had the Smiths neck and neck with the Beatles. I shit you not. And I say this is, I'm a guy who's looking at us. Oh my, I'm looking at a, a Smiths record signed by their guitar player, Johnny Marr. And I'm looking at a tambourine that supposedly, according to the person who sold it to my wife when she gave it to me for Christmas a couple of years ago, has not only a signature, but uh, a little bit of poetry and a sketch from the hand of Morrissey. I'm a big Smiths fan, but the Beatles, that's calmed down. Hold your horses. So anyway, the always breathless and hyperbolic British press described an album that came out in June of 1983 as the pinnacle or the peak of whatever the exact quote was um uh the british second wave or i i, if I was going to quote the quote i probably should have looked up the quote again you get the idea but you know what <clears throat> they may not have been right but they weren't obviously wrong in describing uh what would we be what would be the final studio album from the police so there's like i feel like there's a couple of different ways that bands can be you know, classic all-time bands. There's the um, the Guns N' Roses and Jimi Hendrix of the world that, like, the first album is just like this earthquake that sends shockwaves through the the culture and the music listening establishment. And then after that, there's like, they're just kind of trying to maintain that peak and slowly sliding off. And then there's like the band's um, if you listen to uh, my Patreon stuff, you know that I'm listening to a shit ton of Metallica these days because my kids are super into Metallica. Metallica is not my favorite band, but of the things my children could insist on listening to uh, repeatedly, it could get a hell of a lot worse than Metallica. Metallica is is that band where it's like they now personally to me, the best album is the third album. It's Master of Puppets, but they come out and and their first album is like, whoa, have you heard these guys? And then the second album and the third album, in the case of Metallica, you you know, it's uh, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. It's like, whoa, I think this is even better than the other stuff. And just when you would have to assume that they've peaked and at best they could be as good as they've been to this point, they, they, they make their mature album and you go, ah, shit. <laughs> so these guys got super pretentious and read a couple novels and, and, and the, the danger, the excitement is going to be gone, but they end up turning in this late career masterpiece. It's like they made their, their, their teen angst albums and now they're making adult music, polished stuff. And that's the Black Album, which to me, it's not the greatest Metallica album, but it is like this fitting bookend of their classic era. The Police are one such band who, had they never made the album Synchronicity, had they never grown up and become more of a studio band, their legacy was secure. I mean, how many flipping hits did they have on the first few albums between the late 70s and the very early 80s? You got Roxanne, you got... Don't stand so close to me. You know the stuff. It's it's more lightweight. It's it's not very polished. It's very like raw in the studio. It's very reggae infused. It was 
popular. It was successful. The, the police were huge, but I don't think people were necessarily thinking of them as like serious artists until they got to what would be their last studio album. And I think that there was always some personal friction amongst the three guys in the band. From what I gather, the drummer, Stuart Copeland, actually started the band. And early on, I think, was like the songwriter before it was like, okay, Sting, maybe you're a little bit better at this than me. But I feel like there was some unresolved tension the whole time of like having to cede the spotlight and control of the band to this other guy who is just obviously more attractive, more charismatic, more talented, just better than Stuart Copeland for all of Stuart Copeland's um, uh, acumen as a drummer. So by the time they made this album, they're recording live in the studio and they're literally in three different rooms performing at the same time. And one of the reasons is just so like, you know, the microphones for the guitar don't pick up the sounds from the drums, etc. But even as the producer said, it was also for personal reasons. They were really three separate dudes with three separate agendas who just happened to be playing the same song at the same time. And there's all these stories of, you know, the producer quit at one point while they were mixing this song or that. But in the end, this was their their final statement as a band, and um, if not, I mean, commercially, probably, critically, definitely, it was the high water mark. A lot of times, the point I'm making here, when a band releases their most mature album to date, it just means they've got uh, a stick up their butt. But uh, maturity, it turns out, suited the police on a couple of gigantic, like, era-defining songs, such as this one right here. Dude, I got a note to myself because I prepped this a while ago. So oh, I had a, I was actually supposed to be talking to another book author and they called in sick this week. So I'm kind of doing this to, to fill in until um, they are well enough to speak to me in a week or two. But uh, I, I prepped this a while ago. I just have a note to myself that just says Menudo. I'm assuming everybody here is old enough to remember Menudo. They were like, I, I honestly thought that they were Mexican. That's how casually racist our society was in the 1980s. Turns out they were Puerto Rican. Um, it was the boy band that revolved through the members. When you reached a certain age, you aged out. It was like the Hunger Games of boy bands. Um, I don't know what I meant by Menudo, but I'm gonna, just going to make the call on the spot here. Let's not talk about Menudo. Let's talk about another band who, like the police... Uh, got their record deal and started releasing music to a wide audience in the late 70s, found immediate success, uh, were definitely a band the cool kids responded to, but here in June of 1983 uh, brought things to another level of sophistication and uh, critical acclaim, and in the case of the Talking Heads, just commercial success. The Talking Heads were not a band that um, casual music fans, top 40 listeners, would have uh, would have known about. You know, I, Psycho Killer didn't get played on the radio in, in the late 70s. I can actually remember my, my parents, when I was growing up, had uh, friends who were the fanciest people that we knew, and we'd meet them sometimes at Irish festivals, and they would bring, um, Doug and Angela would bring 
a basket and a proper cool looking like wicker style picnic basket. And inside they'd have like little cheeses and hams. And to me, this was like fairy tale stuff. The way these people lived, they were very, very bougie compared to what I saw growing up. And I remember that they had two, um, two college aged children and they, I remember them telling me we're weird. We're the only two people on earth who listened to this band, The Talking Heads. And this was before everybody would come to know of The Talking Heads. The big single that, that they released from their fifth album, Speaking in Tongues, was burning down the house, but which is fine. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it's always neat when a song is like super weird, but also like a band doesn't have to bend what they are and who they are to appeal to the mainstream. They just do something that's so undeniable that mainstream embraces the band's like natural weirdness. And that would have been the only song that I'd heard of them probably for, uh, knew from them through the entire 80s. But at some point, I don't remember why, in the last five or ten years, I became obsessed with the other big single, uh, relatively speaking, from Speaking in Tongues. And I've heard from a number of you who I know feel the same way. Dark Horse, this might be the best song that was released in all of the 1980s. I know I've, it's only 83. I've probably already said that like six times, but this time I might be right. In June of 1983, Stevie Nicks continued to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that she was um, the most successful and I mean, let's just say, most talented solo member of Fleetwood Mac. Lindsey Buckingham went off and did the song Holiday Road from National Lampoon, and that was that actually is great. But as far as solo legacies go, probably Lindsey Buckingham anticipated a little bit more than just the 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 Holiday Road song. And Christine McVie had a, had a couple of really nice moments on her own as well. But Stevie Nicks had become a gigantic soul. I mean, visually, your eye was drawn to her on stage with Fleetwood Mac, and her voice just pops in a way. She has a very unique kind of kind of voice that that pops even relative to the other singers in Fleetwood Mac. But then she went and and did it with uh, was it Leather and Lace was the album, Edge of Seventeen, and a couple of gigantic hits. And then she did it again, like Fleetwood Mac would have a big album, and then she did her big debut, and then Fleetwood Mac did another relatively successful album. And then in June of 83, she came back with an album called The Wild Heart. <clears throat> she continued, um, she attracted these uh, great collaborators, but just collaborators that really were stylistically, musically, birds of a feather with her. You know, she did, um, is Leather, I keep calling it Leather and Lace, is that the name of the song? I think so. Um, she did, that was a duet with Don Henley that was really successful from her first solo album. And, um, on that album, she also collaborated pretty extensively with Tom Petty and members of the Heartbreakers. And she continued to, uh, to, to collaborate with Tom Petty on her second album. But I don't think Tom Petty was involved with this gigantic hit right here.
and that's a lot more like 80s <laughs> that I remember the 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 synths were really turned up to 11 on that one but it works you know Steve that's the great thing about when you have such a perfectly identifiable sound like Stevie Nicks does you can you can totally indulge yourself in the trends of the day and you're never uh, a danger of getting swallowed up and losing your identity in them Stevie Nicks as a song it's just it's always going to be Stevie Nicks, even if there's a lot of bells and whistles electronically happening in the background. Here in June of 1983, the Kinks released. Let me get this right. Their their 20th. Yeah, the, the Kinks released their 20th studio album. And uh, one of these days I want to do a whole show on the bands who released the best music the deepest into their career you know the standard of that i think is typically um the graceland album from paul simon even though that's yeah that's like 20 years into his career i guess it's about the same i don't think even hardcore kinks fans will tell you that this was the best music that the kinks had ever released but uh it was definitely um really successful i i, I wasn't really thinking too deeply about the kinks legacy when i was six years old in 1983 but i would imagine most people at the time were pretty surprised that these dudes were back um and making not only listenable music but successful music this song which you will recall went all the way to um to number six on the billboard chart which is which was the biggest uh hit for the kinks in the u.s since 1965 18 years later they equaled their previous greatest success at least on the u.s charts with this song right here in the hallway in anticipation he didn't know the night would end up in frustration he'd end up blowing all his wages for the week or for a cuddle and a peck on the cheek calm down sir that's how they did it when I was just a kid And when they said come dancing My sister always did The same month the Kinks released their 20th studio album, Jeff Lynne and Electric Light Orchestra released their 10th. Shout out to my boy Will Pendarvis. This is his all-time favorite band. I'm sure everybody listening to this is totally familiar with will do you know he's back on instagram and uh you know he's he's a dj now with uh i think he's back at 99x um down in atlanta and he 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 instagrams some of his dj breaks so if you've been missing having will pendarvis on the mic in your life make sure you're following him on uh on instagram at dead letters tell him i sent you so yeah will is a massive electric light orchestra fan. I don't totally get it. Then again, Will doesn't totally get a lot of the stuff that I'm into, and that's fine. I guess you kind of had to be there. Will's a little bit older than I am. Uh, here in 1983, ELO released what would be, I, I gather, they used to record with an actual full orchestra. This was the last album that they used an orchestra on. I'm assuming from then on out, um, they replaced what the orchestra would have been doing with electronic stuff. Uh, but here in 83, it was, they released a song, lo um, an album loaded with backwards messages. I guess e nobody was free from the, uh, the, the, the suspicious gaze of Tipper Gore and the PMRC, I think is what that thing, that organization was called. And uh, ELO had, had dabbled in putting some backwards and hidden messages on records before. So, of course, ELO is an agent of Satan. Um, so they were accused of 
satanic mischief. So leaning into that, Jeff Lynne put all kinds of backwards shit on this album just to mess with people. And indeed, the album was called Secret Messages, and um, it featured what would be the next-to-last top 20 hit for ELO, at least here in the States. The Kinks and ELO were not the only aging British rock royalty who were still releasing new music. In June of 1983, Ringo Starr had a new album. Ringo is still releasing new music pretty consistently for some strange reason. Here in June of 83, call me crazy, I feel like he caught like a little mini wave and made something that was kind of not... Well, here's the thing. I guess... When it comes down to it, I'm an 80s music guy, and this is a very 80s album from Ringo. And so it's like it's like when you go to uh, like a really, really bad buffet. It's not like nothing is good. It's just you find the 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 kind of food that you usually like the most. You're like, okay, I, I'd rather have a bad taco than bad Chinese food. Maybe that's all this is. But to me, this is fairly listenable stuff from Ringo. I'm sure that had a lot to do with the fact that um, Joe Walsh from the Eagles, who had just broken up at this point, was the producer and he played guitar on this stuff and he had a heavy hand in the songwriting. Um, it's kind of weird and wistful with all of this early 80s Beatles stuff. Of course it's happening under the, the shadow and the fog of the still, at that point, recent death of John Lennon. Indeed, Ringo had bought a house from John over in, in England and uh, John had a recording studio in his home there. And that's where Ringo recorded this album. He went, he, he was in the process of making John's house his own when John died. And he literally turned over. I'm sure there was still, still stuff, plenty of stuff in the recording studio that had been John's. Ringo had been uh, turning it over to, uh, I don't kind of crazy to imagine Ringo Starr going, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good amplifier, but I'm just going to bring in my own shit. But um, it, the Jingo, John's British home studio had been Ringo-fied, and Joe Walsh came by, and they cranked out a new batch of tunes, including this one right here. So New Wave was all the rage. So Ringo, um, curmudgeonly and, and hilarious as ever, called his album Old Wave. if you guys can hear the lawnmower in the background of course he stops the second i bring it up i hope you're enjoying the natural ambiance of this state-of-the-art pod bunker next up in june of 83 lover boy 
released their third studio album. If you'd asked me, I would have guessed that Working for the Weekend was their biggest hit. It sure was in little Mikey Tully's heart. I I don't think I had a lover boy trapper keeper, but I'm positive my trapper keeper had, remember, I think they had specific like branded trapper keeper folders that would go inside your trapper keeper. Anyway, I had, I don't want to brag, but I had a lover boy folder back in the day and I was a big fan, still am, of working for the weekend, but I, I looked it up. It turns out that only made it to number 29 on the charts, but it paved the way for uh, the band to achieve even greater commercial success on their next album, which was entitled Keep It Up. And uh, that featured a top 10 hit amongst a couple of singles. Of course, we didn't have artificial intelligence back in the 1980s. But if we had, and if you had asked AI to spit out um, the most prototypical on-the-nose title for a 1980s single. It might well have given you Hot Girls in Love. As a guy who listens to a lot of music and popular music and likes learning about stuff and sits in a lot of traffic, Wikipediaing a lot of stuff, there's only so many songs left that uh, that I can I, I can I can look up that I know are successful, and then when I hear them, I go, "Oh, that's one!" Like um, "Green Onions," right? That's that instrumental by it was like Booker T, Booker G. It's the instrumental. I go, "Oh shit!" I've, I I everybody knows. It. I mean, I, I gotta play. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, this. Booker T and the MGs. Like, you know this song. Everybody. I feel like I was born knowing this song, but could you name? I'm sure many of you could name the artist and the title, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who, uh, until recently, I, I did not know that. I'm sure many of you are in the same boat. So, in June of 83, Stevie Ray Vaughan put out his debut album. You may recall he'd already, he was already uh, a name behind the scenes and had made uh, a name for himself in the industry being featured on um, some of the singles that David Bowie put out, I don't know, a few months, a year before this. He played lead um, guitar on China Girl, was we talked about on the show a while back. But here in June of 83, he released his debut solo album, Texas flood. And so I look it up and I see, oh, there's the, the big single is called pride and joy. And I literally, that doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. Well, it's some blues song that blues people like, but, but no, I, first of all, I looked it up and I thought it was a cover because coincidentally there is a song, a kind of similar song, um, from the Motown catalog of the same name. So that's a song called Pride and Joy, um, that version recorded by the immortal Marvin Gaye, but uh, the, the Stevie Ray Vaughan song of the same name. He is credited as the sole songwriter. This is an original composition. Kind of wonder what that really means when, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan himself would um, 
freely volunteer. This is a pretty standard Texas blues shuffle that like any any bar band could play this piece of music. Obviously, they would not play it as well. The lead guitar playing would not be nearly as tasteful. I'm not trying to take anything away from Stevie Ray Vaughan as a guitar player, but yeah, he he wrote the lyrics. Anyway, for whatever it's worth, this is this is an original song that sounds like every other blues song you've ever heard in your entire life, but it is a classic, and um, I think if I knew more people, if I was from the South, if I was from Texas, if I went to more backyard barbecues, I bet you I would have known this by uh, by title instantly. I didn't, I, I honestly, I don't even think I even knew that this was Stevie Ray Vaughan, but it is, and it's a big famous song. And if you don't already know the song I'm talking about, you're going to know it when you hear it right now. It's very easy to see why the the rock establishment and rock critics critics were so excited about Stevie Ray Vaughan when he first came out. First of all, because he's very good. That's very good music. They liked him and they wanted to tell the world about him because he was good. I don't want to seem like a bitter dick about this. But also, as I've talked about so many times on this show, as so many of the um, the classic rock heroes of the 60s and 70s aged out of making um, commercially viable music stuff that held up to their earlier standards and or as so many of them started dabbling in the 80s electronic stuff um, to have this guy this great white hope come along who was doing stuff there are no synthesizers on that record whatsoever and uh, as a result, it's 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 timeless. If you could have told me that came out in 75, you could have told me that came out in 95, and I would totally believe you. Stevie Ray Vaughan and a debut album that firmly, indisputably established him as uh, uh, joining the ranks of the blues greats that had come before him. And uh, I don't think a lot of people saw one, another one of those guys coming in 1983. In that same month that Texas Flood came out, Twisted Sister released their second studio album. The third one, Stay Hungry is the one um, that, that made the massive superstars and, you know, MTV superstars. I think they told, sold like 3 million copies of that album. But the one before that is definitely the one that set the stage for their superstardom. It only went gold, uh, 500,000 copies sold. But, um, but everybody knows the title track that put Twisted Sister on the map. The, mm-hmm. the only thing D. Snyder is more committed to than rock and roll is writing songs about how committed he is to 
rock and roll. Speaking of rock and roll, now, if I was doing what I usually do and uh, splitting this show into the A-sides and the B-sides, this next track would be the song that I leave you with. But uh, I'm not going to do, like, encores at shows, isn't it? It's, it's, time for, it's time for bands to, I don't want to say do away with encores, but ob- obligatory encores have been ridiculous for as long as they've been obligatory. It's always weird and uncomfortable when you're at a band show and then they finish and everyone's like, cool, because I was kind of ready to go anyway. But then they start like flashing the lights and some people stomp their feet and you're like, okay, yeah, come out and do another one, dude. So uh, it kind of feels like the next few songs I'm going to do are like the encore of this podcast but first i need to wrap up the regular show and i will do so with i think yeah this is the first album from pantera and if you are even a casual fan of pantera you know the story you know that they were a glam band before they got all hard right like as you know uh, there's certain there's certain unforgivable musical sins that uh, you know remember when i talked to that guy aaron god i wish i could remember his last name start with a k i think who wrote the book uh, in defense of ska, and he made that terrific point that saying, pointing out that someone used to be in a ska band could like end them. Like when uh, that band, The Bravery, came out, and uh, the, the Brandon Flowers from The Killers took exception to how much he correctly perceived The Bravery to sound like his band, to to take those guys down a notch, or perhaps even. And, and uh, end them entirely. He shot the death blow. He reminded everybody that one of the guys from the Bravery used to be in a band called Skaba the Hut, which is, I mean, even by the 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 pun centric names of ska bands, pretty ludicrous. Um, in the metal world, I think it's kind of a similar thing when somebody arrives on the scene claiming that they are all about, you know, like Dee Snider, rocking as hard as humanly possible. If you're able to f- produce a picture of that guy with like poofy poodle hair and spandex tights, um, that could be that could be a death blow to that guy's career. Like when uh, Dr. Dre, right? People will roll out those photos of Dr. Dre was in a, I, I don't even know the deal with them, but like clearly a less hardcore act than NW. NWA before NWA put it that way but here's the thing about that stuff very often when you're saying you know that guy used to be in a blah 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 band you're talking about when that guy was a flipping teenager and that is the case with Pantera a lot of people have made some music that you know you still feel a certain affection for but it's not you know that in retrospect you may have thought it was ready for prime time when you're making this music when when you're 16 years old but looking back through um with an adult sensibility you're like wow that was kid stuff. I'm glad nobody ever heard that stuff. Your first band is just sort of a dry run for a lot of people. You're listening to a guy right now. When I was 15, 16, I proudly put my name on songs called Suicide Nation and Mary Goes Down. The difference between me and Pantera is that my dad wasn't an established person in a local music scene who owned a recording studio that was uh, able to help me take those songs and distribute them to a wider audience. That was the case with Pantera. The, the, The Abbott brothers were 16 and 19, but their dad, Jerry Abbott, who's a country music songwriter and producer, had a studio and uh, he helped them produce this and he helped them press copies of it. So for better or for worse, um, the stuff that they made as kids way before they met Phil is on the public record. In a retrospective review, all music described metal magic 
as exceedingly average hard rock and metal misfires. Um, but the highlight, relatively speaking, was the first track, and I guess you'd call it the single, Ride My Rocket. Pantera in their early teenage incarnation, if nothing else, making it very clear, they really, really liked Kiss. Okay, folks, before I send you on your way, I have a couple of tracks that would ordinarily be on the bonus show. We'll just throw them in here and see what we make of uh, relatively unremarkable late career releases from Motorhead and Diana Ross, and Rod Stewart, who, I wonder if I remember this song. This song was Rod Stewart's biggest hit since Do You Think I'm Sexy? It had been, I think that came out in, it was the late 70s, so it had been six years or so since Rod the Bod had had a hit, and of course, he was uh, far from done. He had a number of 80s hits, and then he had the big unplugged album in the late 90s, but this was, I think, a top 15 hit here in the States, do you remember Rod Stewart and a song called Baby Jane? That's why we got to check out every single fucking album that came out every single fucking month of the 1980s. I remember that song. You remember that, right? It's pretty harmless. It's above average, Rod. We all know he did far worse um, elsewhere, especially in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does it pretty good? Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Had some fun new wave stuff, right? There's Young Turks. That's I mean, The weekend pretty much appropriated the, the, the vibe of that song entirely for the best song by... The weekend, um, blinding lights. I should, I, I, look, you can either know about um, pop acts from Poland who are releasing music in the early 1980s, or you could know the names of all the big songs from the the current era. And you know what show you're listening to. One of the biggest Polish pop acts of all time, still to come. But first, uh, Diana Ross. I think this is when Diana Ross had just signed like a massive, massive record deal that um, she was on Motown, obviously, for forever with the Supremes and then solo and through the disco era. And uh, it just never seems like it works out for these labels to sign the gigantic superstars who've already been big for like 15 years. It's just very, very, very few bands or artists 
um, continue making hit stuff, you know, for, for 20 years. And obviously the sticker price is going to be really high on a Diana Ross. And you know how it is. It, you, you, you hear she signed a $1 million five album deal, which is like kind of nothing nowadays, but it was a lot at the time. And I don't think RCA recouped, but, um, she put out an album in, um, just called Ross in June of 83. And it featured one song that at least cracked the top 40. And that is this song right here, Pieces of Ice. Yeah, I don't know. Is that the chorus? Is there a chorus coming? I don't. I don't care, and I'm I'm, gather, I'm gonna guess that you don't either. Um, the first Diana Ross music video to feature choreographed dance. There's a fun fact that's not very fun about a song. That's not very fun either. All right, so um, guys, like, relax. I am gonna play you um, the biggest Polish pop band of the 1980s. But first, let's see what Lemmy and Motorhead were up to in June of '83. <laughs> Yeah, that tracks. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap this up with a neat little Polish bow, folks. Thanks as always for joining me. Next time on this show, I forget. Depending on when my uh, currently ill guest recovers, it'll either be him or we're we're definitely talking books next time around. And then after that, we'll do we'll see what was happening in the world of uh, popular contemporary music in July of 1983. But for now. Thanks for being here. If there's plenty more where this came from at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. And I will leave you with uh, Poland's answer to, I, I don't know, every pop band. I don't know how many Polish successful pop bands there were. Lady Pank in uh, in July, uh, June of 1983 released uh, what would be one of their signature hits. Enjoy. And I'll see you next time. Could have been worse. <laughs>